Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. This is a sample of our recent bonus episode. Every couple of weeks or so, our crew of researchers, Amanda and myself, get together for a roundtable discussion. So here's a few minutes for free so you can see what all the fuss is about. For reasons that I cannot fully remember at the moment... The other day, Aaron and I got talking about why it is rude to put your elbows on the table. And so I I went and found this explanation on the Ask Historians subreddit. And presumably a, a historian writes this. In the case of elbows on the table, it appears guarded. Think of placing your elbows to either side of your plate and shoveling meat into your mouth while looking furtively around the table. Later examples of this behavior is said to have come from sailors who would use their elbows to stabilize their plates in rough seas, but typically anyone who felt the need to guard their food while eating, think poor or lower class folk while not at home, people who lived on the street, or who spent time with violent or aggressive people such as prisoners would similarly use their arms to guard their food while they ate. So because of the association with fear, aggression, the lower class, this behavior became considered rude at a polite dining table. In general, for a polite dining experience, we want to try to shed any of our behaviors that relate to being guarded and instead emphasize behavior that gives the appearance of comfort, relaxation, and openness. And so with that explanation, obviously concern with the lower class, the, you know, they're, they're uncouth, we don't want to be like them, that obviously comes up. But what I found incredibly interesting was to compare that explanation by a, a historian on Reddit with an article in Southern Living Magazine, <laughs> the probably one of the preeminent periodicals for the panicked elite. In this article, Why Is It Rude to Eat With Your Elbows on the Table? And Southern Living writes, For earlier civilizations, it was a way to prevent outbreaks of violence at the table. Table manners prevented us from leaving our space and starting a fight. It was important that people saw you as considerate or trying hard. Margaret Visser, author of The Rituals of Dinner, The Origins, Evolution, Eccentricities, and Meaning of Table Manners, explained to Reader's Digest. Think of it this way. Situated on either side of a place setting, the fork and knife already act as an imaginary boundary for each person's space at the table. In the olden days, back when social norms were the only thing keeping people in line, crossing that invisible border could be interpreted as a disregard for order. People like that were dangerous and capable of anything. This is just the article. This this isn't even quote anyone. This is just the article writer. Quote, People got scared when you started having bad manners, Visser continued. They realized the taboo was not functioning, and you didn't know what this person was going to do next. (laughs) Panic at the dinner table. Oh, there's so much in there to pull apart. I just, 
didn't know that our social circles were so volatile. Yeah. Like, yes, volatile is a perfect, I didn't know that there was such a thin line of what kept us from like devolving, which is interesting because yeah, (laughs) like humanity in general, I feel like when you look back at earlier civilizations, they still had constructs. They still coexisted with one another. They still had roles in the community, but God forbid you put your elbows on the table like that. That's it. Everything else that you've ever learned just goes away, dissipates. Yeah. (laughs) So I I just have to bring this up because it's a funny and bizarre anecdote. So my grandmother used to always tell me to take my elbows off the table. Now, my grandmother was a Southern woman brought up, you know, in the 20s and 30s of Southern America. And it was very important for her, for her granddaughters to act appropriately at the dinner table. And she would tell us, (laughs) she would sing this little rhyme and she'd say, Mabel, Mabel, strong and able has her elbows on the table. And when we would ask, what the heck is that? She said that at her sorority house at Chapel Hill in uh, North Carolina, they would sing that in unison if one of the girls had their elbows on the table. And of course, now my adult self is thinking back to this rhyme and I'm thinking, Mabel, Mabel, strong and able. She sounds like a badass, but she's got her elbows on the table and now she needs to be shamed. (laughs) That is, that is what's going on. (laughs) Strong, able to create violence. That's right. She could throw down. At any second. Mm-hmm. They probably would have mm-hmm. mentioned dangerous, but it didn't rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was imagining the scenarios that had to have happened to lead up to this panic, right? Like, clearly somebody got stabbed at dinner a couple times before <laughs> they came up with these rules. But the people that came up with these rules are the elites, so they're, you know, projecting onto the, well, if, if we're stabbing each other because of our insanity and greed for power, <laughs> yeah, lust for power and, and resources, well, aren't, isn't everyone, has anyone ever been to a dinner where you thought you were going to get stabbed? And if <laughs> just, so. Just the red wedding. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> what people were you, like, generally, I, th- I assume dinner is like, you know, family, friends. Coworkers, classmates, what what scenario is that other than elites coming together to talk about how we're going to divide up this plot of land, and that's where the fights come from. Not absolutely. It, and then they had to decide. Well, you know, it was clearly because the knives were on the table or the elbows were on the table, not because we're greedy, selfish monsters. Yeah, I think it yeah. kind of uh, peeks a lens into like the paranoia that exists with elites, just like always thinking that someone is out to get them. Because I'm thinking like, okay, so if this comes from lower class and they're they're guarding their food, right? Then that has to do with the lack of resources. Like the answer isn't like to guard your food; it's we need more food. But to them, like to think that someone's going to stab them. It must be like conspiratorial, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. someone's trying to make a play against them, trying to get Take into their role, their yeah. power. Mm-hmm. And they're right because they have too much stuff and we all should take it back. <laughs> That's right. They should be paranoid. <laughs> I know. 
Yeah, but the people that would actually take that are are not being invited to dinner. Exactly. I mean, what if Robin Hood came to dinner? Then they'd be really scared and <laughs> they'd have to they'd have to kill him. <laughs> so. And as part of preparing for this conversation, Amanda, you came across some more table manners. Yeah. So like when you're a kid and you're your cho- one of your chores is to set the table. You know, I remember my mom telling me, well, you have to put the blade of the knife facing inwards towards the plate, right? And that's, you know, the correct way to set a table. And I remember asking one time why, and she said something like, oh, if you put the knife out, it's threatening or something. And that's just how it is. And I, I don't know, didn't ask more questions at that point in my life. But since we were talking about this, I went and looked up the actual explanation for that. And it's very similar, of course, to elbows on the table with a slight, a slight twist. I, I found this on a website for a person who does like auctions of antiques and old timey stuff. And his if you saw his picture, you'd just be like, I trust this man to tell me the rules of etiquette was silverware. He just, he's the whole (laughs) package, right? So it says, the knife is always placed on the right with the blade facing the plate. Early on, before there was such a thing as a table knife, a man used a double-edged knife to hunt, kill, and portion meat for his family. The same knives used for hunting migrated to the table, and our ancestors used them to spear food and lift the food to the mouth on the edge of the blade. During those warring times, the leader of the household was always apt to be supplanted. How easy would it be for a rival to push a sharp blade into someone's face while they were using it to eat? an image. It wasn't long before the double-sided knife gave way to a single-edged knife for exactly this reason. Uh, The placement of the single-edged knife on the table with the blade facing inward indicated that the host trusted his dining companions. If during the course of the meal, the host were to turn the sharp edge away from his plate, that would indicate someone at the table was not so trusted and that the host was ready to grab the knife to lash out (laughs) with the outturned blade. Today, we always place the blade inward. Also, what about those blunt dinner knives? This is just a bonus. I thought this was interesting. This heralds back to the 17th century France when Cardinal Richelieu, who was the arbiter of taste at the French court, was so offended by the practice of diners picking their teeth at the table with the point of their knives that he had all knives in the French court ground down. He thus made his point and the rest of the world followed. (laughs) So that's also why we have rounded dinner knives in addition he probably had big toothpick industry (laughs) sliding him some cash under the table that's right (laughs) of course there was a headline just recently that says that you know we always think of kings eating turkey legs apparently they weren't that big of meat eaters so maybe knives weren't as weren't even as big of a deal as we as we've made them out to be at the dinner table i still can't Imagine the scenario where if you if you turn a knife like 90 degrees or whatever, you're safe. But if you turn it the other, like, <laughs> well, all hell might break loose. Like, if you're going to stab somebody, you're going to stab somebody, right? Like, it was probably something you thought about before dinner. Right. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. And it's, you're just giving it's them also a heads up. Silly. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, guess what? You turned it. You're about to get stabbed. <laughs> Or didn't someone say this before we started recording that it it could have been a signal to the staff, like shit's Mm. about to go down. Oh, (laughs) do do you see the boss's knife? Get ready. (laughs) Get the hell out of here. 
Could be. <laughs> oh, man. So actually, that, that brings me to today's lesson from Words Matter, which I, I hadn't picked up in a few weeks, but looked at recently. And it turned out that, uh, that the staff came up. So this came in, in the context of a section talking about quantification generalizing and domain of quantification, as everyone knows. And <laughs> so th- th- just giving the examples, I think, will basically explain itself. So a, a person might say, and this is a, a quantification, uh, the, the word most is doing the quantification in this sentence. Most 10-year-olds have their own smartphones, right? You might say something like that. Or everyone, that's a quantification, everyone toasted Democrats regaining control of the House of Representatives. But what is implicit in this language is the domain of quantification, meaning who are we really talking about when we're talking about most? Who are we really talking about when we're talking about everyone? So it says someone in the United States saying most 10-year-olds have their own smartphones is unlikely to have given any thought to all the children in Nepal or even to children in their own country living in extreme poverty. So it's, it's just an example of how we use language without even thinking about it, creating these subcategories where you know we are ignoring large swaths of humanity and sort of re-entrenching the idea of who counts, who doesn't, who's worth paying attention to, who's not, etc. Which brings us to the staff. And it says, uh, another quick example, we had the restaurant to ourselves. No one else was there. And of course, you can imagine what that would be like. You know, you're dining with your compatriots and, uh, you know, there's almost no one else or maybe literally no one else dining at the restaurant. But of course, they wouldn't be including the people actually keeping the restaurant running, cooks, dishwashers, those who wait on tables, those who clear away dirty dishes, etc. So it says people in service positions are often tacitly excluded as discourse participants. Those being served simply speak as if the servers were not there, certainly not part of the present we. Establishing a domain, however, reflects and sustains hierarchical social relationships in many subtle ways, and it is almost always implicit, not out on the table to be debated. Thus ends our lesson for the day, that the way we talk and the essentially becomes part of the stories we tell ourselves, who's important, like what characters are to be discussed, which characters are background players not to be considered, and how that entrenches our idea of fundamentally how the world works. In, in that, like the, like the definition of why we're having so many problems right now with like people wanting to be called different names and like, well, you didn't get to be part of this before. I could just exclude you. And now I have to think of a new name or call you what you want to be called or, or, or just think about you in general. Like that, that's the fight of America at the moment is including all those people who are actually at the restaurant, all those people who actually don't have cell phones as 10 year olds, 
That's it for that's today's free fight. sample. That's, Paying that's members are who make this entire show possible, and so these bonus a, episodes are really just a fun way to say thanks to them for their support. In addition to these full bonus episodes, members also get bonus clips in every single regular episode, as well as perks in our Discord community. The Discord community is free for anyone to join, but there's a members-only area where recommendations of all kinds are shared, both from listeners and producers of the show. So if you'd like to be our newest member, you can sign up at bestofleft.com support directly from our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you can't afford a membership, I offer free financial hardship memberships. Just drop me an email to j at bestofleft.com and we will get you all set up no questions asked. Or again, to sign up, visit bestofleft.com slash support. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.